0: You are listening to the audio from Life Community Church, located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. Today, Pastor Reed Bradley will take us through 2 Samuel chapter 11-12 in the series, The Sling, The Sword and the Sovereign. We will now join Pastor Reed Bradley as he delivers the message
1: prayer for us as we get started. Lord God, I do thank you for the great salvation that is offered to us in you. We ask that now during this time we would remember why it is that we have gathered because we have a hope, we have a hope that holds fast even in the midst of the ups and downs in life, that you are always worthy of praise. And we ask this morning that you would draw our hearts to be attentive to your word, that you would allow us to uh, glorify you in the listening, in the receiving of your word for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you are doing and what you will do. In your great name we pray, amen. So this morning we are going to be continuing in the book of 2 Samuel. We've been going through the life of David. And we are going to be entering into uh, a really uh, difficult passage, not necessarily in its complexity, but in the scope of the challenge it presents us with. Uh, We are going to be talking, and and I'm going to bring things to a close at the end of uh, the message today with uh, what I am going to borrow uh, some terms here, and I'm going to be calling it uh, hard truth and hot gospel. Uh, And we are going to really need that as we get to the end of this. And so I just want you to know that's where we're going. There's going to be some hard truths as we come through this text. There is going to be at the end some incredible, uh, unthinkable, hot gospel as we get into this. And it's going to be really, really great. But as we dive in, I do want to remind us a little bit of where we are in the narrative of 2 Samuel in the life of David. And I want to give you a little bit of background of stuff that we didn't cover in our sermon last week. Now, the kingdom at this point in Israel has been united under David. He's crowned first in Judah as the king there in Hebron, and then he is brought to the rest of Israel eventually after the last son of Saul is killed and made king over the entire of the kingdom, right? It's it's united, he is reigning, his enemies are running scared and we have an interesting episode in chapter 10 of 2nd Samuel where a king, a rival king in the Ammonites dies. And his son takes the throne and David sends messengers to comfort the son because the king had been kind to him when he was in exile, when he was in running. So he sends messengers to console the son who is now the new king and to say, hey, look, you know, your father had my back. I will support you. And the son takes some really bad advice and treats those messengers very shamefully, sends them back and basically uh, declares war on the people of Israel through this act. And so David sends messengers and sends Joab and the army to fight the Ammonites. And there is a huge and great victory. Uh, and while this is going on, the Ammonites are not only fighting uh, in their own strength, but they actually hire the Syrians to come and help them. And so the God delivers The people of Israel out of this predicament so mightily that the Syrians lose all taste for battle they said you you can't pay us enough to fight this battle so they leave it's just the Ammonites and there's a period of rest uh, during this the sort of rainy season of the year right so warfare during that time was a lot more seasonal you would go out to battle during certain seasons you would come back from battle to rest during seasons where it just wasn't fit to be fighting in for one reason or the other. And so the people of Israel came back. They came back. Uh, Even though there was still the threat of the Ammonites, it was so greatly reduced that they came back to sort of regroup. And it's here that we enter into our passage today. And I'm going to be reading, and we're going to be going through the entirety of chapter 11. We're going to also be reading part of chapter 12. And so we've got a lot of scripture to read through. And as we go, I'm going to probably pause here and there. I'm going to talk about some different things. But I want us to think about this uh, in sort of scenes as we work our way through just different categories as we talk through it. And this is one of the defining moments in David's life. In fact, probably even more so than the story of David and Goliath, although much more widely well known by our contemporary culture, this story defines David. It remains as a sort of dark block, blot, a asterisk against uh, him as it talks about his faithfulness to the Lord. And with all of that in mind, I think let's go ahead and we're going to enter into the text. I want us to consider, first of all, David at the pinnacle of his reign, at at the pinnacle of his accomplishment as God's man, as God's king, we've talked on several occasions throughout our sermon series about how David is the king God has chosen for himself, rather than Saul being the king that Israel chose for themselves. And so this is God's man over God's people who has been faithful in all things up to this point, as far as we've been told, And whom the Lord has taken great delight in. And in that context, we come to the fall. Chapter 11, verse 1, the fall. So let's go ahead and we're going to read here as we get started. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant, servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's an unthinkable fall for not just a good man, but a great man in every aspect. And by any standard, if you measure David in his life, he was better than any one of us. He held a standard of faith and righteousness up to this point, which was really unrivaled. And yet here we see a tragic and terrible fall, a shocking display of wickedness. And I do feel the need to mention as we get going in our consideration here, that the first verse, that opening verse, that the time when kings go out to battle is uh, not a significant thing, except that it's a resuming of the war that had been previous. Uh, It seems strange that I should make significance over the fact that there is no significance, but when we read that, our modern thinking and biases tend to squeeze into that idea, well, David wasn't where he needed to be, and that's why all of the events that follow happen. You see, our culture infuses us with the thinking that uh, our sinfulness and our brokenness is, at the very least, very, very heavily the responsibility of our circumstances. That, that if we were removed out of our circumstances, we, we would be much better people than we are now. Maybe not perfect, but much better, obviously. And the point of the author here is not that David has an excuse, but that he has no excuse. There is very little detail that's given here in this great and hor- horrific sin. It's all just the bare bones actions. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay. There was no excuse. David knew what he was doing. He was sinning against the Lord. He was sinning against Uriah, his friend. He was sinning against all parties involved. There's no excuse. And that's important for us to understand, and it's important for us to not shy away from as we consider this text. It's a hard truth, which our society does not easily accept, right? We, we build so much of our analysis and so much of the way we treat others based on circumstances. We do it in parenting. We do it in schooling. We do it in how we watch the news. Oh, they had a tough upbringing. Oh, well, I was just really stressed. Oh, I was just, you know, well, it was these other circumstances. Well, you see, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. And there's no excuse here for David. And he commits this shocking display of wickedness. It's laid out before us with no precedent, with no real reason to suspect that this was going to happen. And in two simple words in the, in the Hebrew, his entire world is turned upside down. I am pregnant. What would have been a hidden sin, what could have been perhaps something that would have been minimized, swept under the rug, forgotten, all of a sudden has real consequences that go beyond the moment. Uh, I think Alistair Begg puts to us a good question in the the midst of this, which is, can you undo a life of usefulness in a single afternoon? And that, that is a challenging question for us to consider as we come to David, God's man, God's chosen king, who has survived so many ordeals And yet here, when he finally has rest from the dangers of his surrounding enemies, is not safe from the dangers of his own heart. And what will happen to David from here? In a single afternoon, is he done? Is it over for him? We wonder at this point, if you're new to this text, is this the time when you come forward? Is there a way that you can fix this? David, you know better. You know the Lord. You love the Lord. You realize there's sin here. What will you do? But rather than repentance, what we see in our next scene is a cover-up, starting in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark... And Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate In his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. We're shocked at the initial sin of David, but perhaps even more shocked at the doubling down and the attempt to cover up what had happened. The plan is obvious. If we can get Uriah here, and if we can get him to go home, then perhaps we can pass off this child as Uriah's rather than David's. Uriah, by all accounts, is an innocent man. He seeks to show solidarity with his fellow soldiers who are camping and in the middle of battle. And so he waits. He desires to to keep that bond with them in that way. And even in the midst of this, we begin to see a pattern that you will follow throughout the rest of this text, which is that this is Uriah's wife. And in fact, Bathsheba for some time will be called the wife of Uriah. The emphasis repeatedly over and over and over again being on the adulterous affair Of David, that he was taking something that was not his, but that belonged to Uriah. It was Uriah's wife, the wife of Uriah. And you have to imagine that this hits David as it's repeated over and over and over again. He fails to get Uriah to go home the first night, and so he attempts to lower his inhibitions, to, to get him drunk so that perhaps now you'll be able to go and to enjoy what you should be able to enjoy, your home, your wife, all of those things. And yet we find here that Uriah holds to his convictions even when you lower his ability to hold fast to those convictions, that we have a bizarre contrast where Uriah drunk is seemingly better than David sober he has more control over himself and more mastery over his own desires than the king did and so we wonder at this point is now David now will you turn you you failed to cover it up you've committed this horrible sin you've got Uriah right there is now the time when you come clean? Is now the time? But we move from a cover-up to murder. In verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the many men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's Anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the walls? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah is dead also. Uriah dies. Not only Uriah by the way, but several of David's mighty men, his his best people. The, the consequences have begun to spiral out of control. Now, not only have covenants been violated, but men have died. Uriah, who was innocent, but many who were completely unconnected to the incident at all. And you have to think at how horrible this is. How horrible the man who God had chosen to be king is behaving in the midst of this. He, he even recognizes the integrity of Uriah to the point where he can send the message by Uriah's own hand. And he knows that Uriah won't open or look at it except to deliver it to Joab as he's ordered. What is happening to this shepherd boy that we have followed along with all this time? What is happening? I'd like to say it gets better, but it doesn't. Verse 22, evil in sight, evil in sight. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one, now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That phrase, displeased the Lord, don't let this matter displeased you, it literally means don't let this be evil in your sight. David receives the news well, you've got to imagine that this messenger is a little perplexed at how well the king receives the news. And he sends a message back to Joab, which is perhaps loaded with meaning, don't let this be evil in your sight. It was an evil act. Joab knows it's an evil act because he knows why the thing happened. Don't let this be evil in your sight. And here we see at the close of chapter 11 that David has convinced himself in his own deceitful heart that the matter was over. The loose ends are tied up. People aren't really going to question it. And in the midst of this, we see that the only consequences that he feared from his behavior were that it would become public, that it would become known amongst the people. He has no thought here of the Lord, and in fact, we don't see anything, any mention of the Lord up until this last verse. It's not because God was absent or didn't see the things that are going on. But the idea here is that David had not given consideration to the Lord. He had not thought about the Lord. He had lost his way. He had lost sight of who had made him king and of the things that had brought him this far. But God had not forgotten David. And in fact, while Joab may overlook what David had done, the Lord saw it and was displeased. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here we have God stepping into the narrative with some hard truth. What David has done is not okay. And the Lord is not content to let it stay there. I want to continue now into chapter 12 as God addresses this. This thing that David has done is displeased the Lord. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. And now verse 1 of 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich And the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, it used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took The poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now for now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For this you did secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. You are the man. The story that Nathan tells echoes of the sin of David. If you look at some of the word choices, it talks about the actions of Uriah, which ultimately led to his death. It talks And uses the language of daughter, which is a wordplay with Bathsheba's name. In all of these things, David sees no evidence or conviction of himself until Nathan says, you are the man. And in this text, I would hold that Nathan's words and his finger point not only to David, but In all honesty, to us. Because if we are honest, that just as David listened to this parable that Nathan told, we listen to this story about David and we are horrified by the sin which is on display. And we see it and we say, What recompense will happen here? Where is the justice? How can the innocent man? be killed. It's unthinkable that a person should commit such evil and think that it would be excused or overlooked. And Nathan's words come to us. You are the man. You are the The sinner. There's an irony to it that in so many of the earlier passages, we would have loved to have been identified with David. And here, where he is perhaps the most similar to us, we distance ourselves. You are the man. David is utterly shattered by God's word in this moment. And as the weight of his sin comes crashing down, while we have not up to this point seen any sort of remorse or repentance from David, we, we hear later in the Psalms that David was miserable throughout all of this, that, that he knew something was wrong, that he was wasting away on the inside, but it was not visible to the observer. But here we see the evidence of God's work up to this point, so that when the word of God comes to him and crushes him, this hard truth shatters the king. And he comes with a confession I have sinned. I have sinned. It's simple, it's short it should make us a little uncomfortable. In fact, probably many of us wonder, like, is that all you have to say for yourself? Because we in our culture have a habit of saying a lot for ourselves. We prefer our apologies to be many-worded as though by the number of words involved, we can determine the sincerity of the person. But this is a true confession from David Acknowledging the severity of his condition without excuse or defense. It stands in sharp contrast to what we've seen from previous kings and from many people throughout the pages of scriptures. Who will say, well, you see, what I did was because of this. Well, my circumstances, well, it actually was well-intentioned or There's no such excuses here. I have sinned. David knows what he deserves. He knows that God has every right to judge, to pour out that wrath. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry. Please, God, take away these consequences. It's too much for me to bear. God, I'm so sorry for what I have done. Please, maybe don't let those things happen. The greatest weight and the crushing truth upon David is that he has sinned, which means he is broken and cast out from the Lord, rightfully so. And so he falls broken before Nathan and has no right to get up, cannot earn his way back to God, cannot do anything to make better what has happened or transpired. The only hope for David is the Lord. And then something happens, which we would be tempted to brush past as we're reading through the consequences and all of the things that are going to happen to David throughout here. Nathan says something to David at this confession. He, he talks about all the consequences. David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says this, The Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. That is un." If we have read and if we have let the weight of David's actions and what has happened up to this point hit us and weigh upon our hearts, the idea that God, who is just, would take that sin and put it away from David and that David would live, though he deserved to die, that is Incredible. That is unthinkable. That is not an end that we would write to the story. And yet, here in these simple words, we see a grace that is wild and untamed and unlimited and goes beyond even our greatest dreams. The Lord has put Away your sin. There are still consequences that follow David. We're going to talk about some of those next week. But the idea that David, having confessed his sin, without defense and without excuse, would then receive grace is incredible. Incredible. But God's grace goes even further than just that. There's restoration and redemption in the midst of this story as well. In verse 24 of chapter 12, after the child dies, the child born to Uriah's wife, we see this happen. And David comforted his wife his wife, no longer the wife of Uriah, his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. For many of us, we've, we've cheapened God's grace so that, that that shock that God would simply put away David's sin doesn't hit as hard. But the fact that God would redeem this relationship, born in sin, in active, high-handed rebellion against him, he would take this relationship And bless it and redeem it so that a child would be born, and that somehow, in the midst of all of this brokenness, David and Bathsheba would be rightly related to one another as husband and wife. Not only that, but that they would bear a son, Solomon. Who the kingdom would then go to, and the promises of God would continue through, and that one day, through the lineage of David and Bathsheba, would come the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. This is an incredible story. To consider, This is an incredible text as God has preserved it for us to consider ourselves, to point to us. And I want us now to consider ourselves, to consider just that. And I mentioned at the beginning, I'm borrowing a phrase from uh, one of my favorite bloggers, Pastor Doug Wilson, hard truth and hot gospel. We have to start with the hard truth. The hard truth, what I mean by hard truth is something that breaks you. This is something that's inflexible, that should make you uncomfortable. You see, the truth is, you have utterly scorned the word of the Lord, that by your actions, you store up wrath for yourself, the wrath of God, which stands fiery against you. You are the man. You are the sinner in the story. You have no excuse. You have no defense. It's not because of your circumstances. No, it's you. You scorned the word of the Lord in your sin. In your heart, by not believing his word, by not trusting in his promises, by not believing that he would be faithful to you as he has promised he would be, by allowing yourselves to be driven by fear of people rather than fear of the Lord. In your own strength, you're helpless. This is the hard truth. It's a hard truth which is unpopular and hated in our society. The idea that people are responsible for their actions, that people are sinful and broken and in rebellion against God. You are utterly You have utterly scorned the word of the Lord. You're utterly helpless. But now I want to turn to some hot gospel here. A gospel which should ignite our soul ablaze, which should set a beacon in our hearts of hope that cannot be extinguished. A gospel which would set fire to the world. But God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. God in Christ Jesus took the full wrath for all your sin deserved by you on the cross. That fiery wrath which you had stored up for yourself by your scorn of the Lord's word and by the rejection of the Messiah in your sin Christ took upon himself all of it for all of your sin not only that Christ invites you to repent of your sin and submit to his lordship it is a fearful thing which should make us tremble to confess wholeheartedly our sin before the Lord without excuse and without defense. I challenge all of you to apologize in that way. I have sinned. I am wrong. Is that all you have to say for yourself? I can't can't say anything else. Nothing I say makes that less true. Christ invites you, repent of your sin, submit to his lordship. But God is rich in mercy, and so Christ the Lord puts away your sin. It's true, you have utterly scorned Christ in your life, and yet Christ takes that sin and as your Lord puts it away, He takes it, He puts it away, and Christ the Lord gives you everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is what you need what your neighbor needs, what your family needs. Oh, church, that we would be a people in our families and in our households where we are able to speak hard truth to one another and offer hot gospel to follow on the heels of that. To say, what has just happened was sin, but there is grace even for that. And it's not because it's not a big deal. It's not because it's okay that you're just not perfect. It's not okay. But that has been paid for by the blood of Christ. And so I can give you grace. I can show mercy because Christ the Lord has shown me mercy. Because Christ has put away my sin. I can live in freedom knowing that when I come and I repent to the Lord... He is faithful and just to forgive me. This last slide is actually intentionally blank. Because all of us need to respond to that truth and to that gospel. But it's up to you to fill that. This is the truth. This is the gospel. I encourage you to use our last song as a response to the Lord. And I'm going to pray for us as we get ready to do that. Lord Jesus, there is none like you who comes to redeem sinners such as ourselves, people who have scorned you and rejected you, Repeatedly, who have nothing to offer, and yet you, by the great love with which you have loved us, by your mercy, you have taken all of that wrath due us to yourself on the cross. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would set a fire in our souls, a burning hope of this great love in this great mercy which has been shown to us, that it would be something that is transforming to us, that is consuming of our lives. And that in all that we do, you would be glorified as king. Lord Jesus, accept this as a response of our hearts. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you very much, and God bless.